Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, professor of apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. And I'm your co-host, Scott Ray, dean of faculty and professor of Christian ethics, also at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. Today, we're here with a friend of Biola and a friend of ours personally who's been on the show before. In fact, you'll recognize the name Preston Sprinkle because the interview we had with him in 2018 was the number one listened to podcast of that year. We're having him back to discuss a similar topic, uh, transgender identities, because he has a fantastic new book out called Embodied. Preston, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Hey, thanks for having me on, you guys. Really appreciate it. So let me start with the the obvious question. I know everybody asks you this, but clearly the question of transgender identities is just a controversial, heated topic. You have a pastoral heart motivated by unity. (laughs) So why write a book on this topic? (laughs) I I do get that. I do get that question a lot. I mean, honestly, with any book topic that I write on, um, it, it typically is fueled by some um, relational context in my life. And that's definitely true of this book. I have several friends who experience, you know, some level of gender dysphoria. I've gotten to know several people who identify as trans, uh, many people who are wrestling with their gender identity and, you know, their, their Christian faith and, and seeing what what is God desire from me as I'm trying to work out my my gender and my sexuality. So um, for me, yeah, there's just lots of names and faces in, in my life that have been looking for, uh, truly looking for biblical and theological and, and ethical guidance on this topic. And and also I would say maybe secondarily, you know, I get asked all the time, um, pastors and Christian leaders for some help uh, to, to help them navigate these really complex conversations because most pastors today are getting lots of questions from people in their congregations and their ministries about you know, um, transgender identities, gender dysphoria, and, and everything that, you know, surrounds that conversation. So Preston, what, let, why don't we, let's start at the very beginning on this for, for our listeners, just so we're clear on definitions. You spend a good bit of time in the book laying this out. So, so what is the definition of sex and the definition yeah. of gender? And how, how are those two uh, things different? Yeah, Scott, that, that's the most important question. I appreciate you asking it because a lot of people kind of skip that question and jump into arguing about transgender identities when we haven't even defined what sex and gender is. So sex, as in biological sex, um, has to do with the the biological reality that all <laughs> that all mammals exist in. We are as mammals, as humans, we are uh, male and female. I mean, these are biological realities that are, if I can say, they are a scientific given as as much as, you know, the earth is round and not flat. Now, the term gender, for, for many years, it, it was used as a simple synonym for sex. Like, we would talk about humans as male and female, and people would say that's their sex, that's their gender, that's their gender, that's their sex, and they would use sex and gender interchangeably. But I would say in the last maybe 40, 50 years, gender has been used as a different aspect, if I can say, of the male and female experience. So that whereas sex refers to the biological reality of being male or female, and we can talk about intersex in case some people are wondering in a second, 
Um, but gender has to do with both the psychological and or sociological response to um, our male or female embodiment. So for instance, you can have a biological male who is clearly male, but they might have a um, psychological incongruence with their male body. They may look into the mirror and see a male body and literally be driven to, you know, throw up because they're, they're, if they feel like they're looking at somebody else because their mind does not resonate with that biological reality. Or sometimes people might be, say, biologically female, but maybe they don't resonate with feminine gender stereotypes. Maybe, you know, you're, you're female, but you love to play sports. You hate to wear dresses. You hate the color pink. You know, you, you have these kind of stereotypical masculine interests. So maybe for that person, they might not resonate with the, um, with the cultural uh, stereotypes of femininity. Um, and, and a lot of people would say that that's their sort of gender incongruence. So gender, again, can refer to one's psychological or sociological resonance or lack thereof with their biological sex. So make the distinction then between transgender and gender dysphoria for our listeners, if you can. Okay, so gender dysphoria would be the um, medical or psychological term used to describe the distress that some people feel uh, in response to their biological sex. Um, it can range from mild to severe. Um, sometimes it can come and go. Uh, for a lot of kids it, who experience this, you know, before puberty, a lot of times going through puberty ends up, you know, relieving the dysphoria. Now, transgender, I would say, is a broader term. It does come, I mean, in, in this day and age, it does come with a lot of sociological or even political assumptions. Um, some people would say, you know, there's, there's a whole kind of movement that says you don't need to have gender dysphoria to be trans. Like you can just, if you say you're trans and you're trans, like you don't need some you know, medical gatekeeper to, you know, <laughs> give you a, a you know piece of paper that tells you you're trans, meaning you don't need a medical diagnosis. You just say you're trans. So I, the, the simplest way I can put it is, is transgender or trans um, is a much broader term to convey a, a many different kinds of identities, experiences, whereas gender dysphoria is a more specific um, medical description. So that most people with most people who identify as trans will also have gender dysphoria, but not everybody with gender dysphoria will identify as trans. And some people who identify as trans, are you confused yet? <laughs> some people who identify yeah. as trans might not even experience uh, gender dysphoria. So long story short, I don't, we shouldn't use these two terms as, as synonyms. So Preston, while, while we're on the definitions and to make it even more confusing, uh, what, what is the definition of intersex? And the, the reason I'm asking this is because you, it's pretty common out there, I think, to hear that the phenomena of intersex, what follows from that is that there's this, there's this sort of third way for gender identity that's neither male nor female. And it's often used, the, the existence of intersex is often used as an argument against a binary way of looking at uh, biological sex and gender. Yeah, uh, yeah. thanks for bringing that up, Scott. I mean, I, I do hear that a lot. I would say in the 
more, how do I say it? In, in, in the medical community, people don't blur those categories, you know, intersex and transgender, but it is very popular in, you know, in various blogs and kind of uh, pop culture. So yeah, so let's just back up. So yeah, intersex is a, is a broad term used to describe a number of different medical conditions. Uh, people estimate that there's anywhere from 16 to 20 or even more different kinds of conditions whereby somebody um, might develop some level of atypicality or some kind of atypical feature in their biological sex. So again, going back to our sex gender distinction, intersex has to do with sex, not uh, gender. And gender has nothing intrinsically to do with intersex. Now, of course, some people who have an intersex condition might also experience gender dysphoria. Um, but these two concepts, intersex and gender or gender dysphoria, are not intrinsically related. So it's also, well, it's important to recognize, too, some people use the term intersex as if it's a synonym for neither male nor female. But if we actually look at the medical condition that um, that intersex covers, you know, the 16 to 20 different kinds of conditions, it's been estimated by medical professionals that close to 99% of all people with an intersex condition are still clearly male or female. What that means is that most of these intersex conditions produce only a very minor uh, variation or atypicality in their biological sex. I mean, I've got friends who found out they were intersex when they were like in their mid thirties, obviously they didn't wonder whether they're male or female until their mid thirties. They, they, you know, they didn't, it was so minor they didn't even notice it until they got older. So um, now there is, you know, within that broad category of intersex, there are some uh, conditions like um, androgen insensitivity syndrome and a few others where there is a, a really significant, um, if I can say, blur um, in the person's uh, male or female biological sex. So AIS, for instance, is where somebody has a Y chromosome. So they have XY chromosomes, which is typically a male um, chromosome, um, but they have developed into a female body. And there's all kinds of reasons for that we don't need to get into. That way, that would be a pretty significant blend. So genetically, they would be male, by you know, uh, visibly or whatever. They they would be very much female. And, and, but that's a very very rare condition of intersex. Um, now, just to put kind of, um, put a bow on it here, um, everything I'm talking about when it comes to intersex, this is talking about biological sex. But if somebody says, you know, they, they are clearly male, but identify as female, that's not an intersex condition. That does not have to do with their, some kind of atypical feature in the biological sex necessarily. It has to do with whether or not their, their mind um, or their identity, you know, resonates with their biological sex. So I, I do think it's important to keep these separate. And, and one last thing, it, it's, um, there are a, a growing number of actual intersex people who are starting to uh, speak up saying, please stop using me as, you know, <laughs> some kind of like, you know, um, tool in your argument to argue for a transgender identity. So I, I do think it's, we, we do need to listen to actual intersex uh, people before we um, use them in an argument for or against transgender identities. Are, are you comfortable saying insofar as it goes, the intersex is a biological condition and transgender is a psychological condition? 
Yes, very much. Yeah. Yeah. And I, again, I don't know um, too many people, at least in the academic community, who would argue otherwise. That does seem pretty clear. Yeah. So as Christians, we believe this and I obviously believe it can be defended apart from Scripture that a human being is body and soul. So if a person is trans and there's a lack of congruence between body and soul, which one defines who the person, uh, I don't even know what word I would use, actually is, so to speak? Is it the soul? Is it the body? Are they equal? Does the body outweigh the soul? How do we make sense and identify somebody when there's a lack of congruence between the two, biblically speaking? That, that's a fantastic question. And it's actually uh, chapter eight in my book. I, I devote a whole chapter to, um, you know, wh- you know, what if somebody's born with a female soul and a male body? Well, th- that question uh, comes with a lot of philosophical and if I can say anthropological assumptions. Um, it, it's at the very least questionable whether we can compartmentalize or divide up human nature so neatly. Um, and, and you both know that there's, you know, lots of debates in philosophical circles about the material and immaterial aspect of human nature and, and which one is more important and can you separate these two. It does seem biblically that however we understand the soul or the immaterial in relation to the body or the material that the Bible does tend to view them as an organic kind of composite whole. Like you can't neatly separate the body, you know, which is some shell covering the real you. Like that is what we would call Gnosticism, you know, where the, the immaterial yeah. you is way more important than the, than the, than the bodily you. So all that this, so yeah, um, we need to first understand that we can't just assume that there is some sort of invisible part of you that can be mismatched with your body. Like that is a profound uh, philosophical claim. But when we talk about whether or not we are male or female, those categories are by definition bodily categories. So for instance, if you went to a hospital and you went to a, a room and saw somebody who's in a coma, okay, they're not, their brain waves are not doing anything. I guess I'm 100% sure that's what a coma is, but work with me here. Um, You know, that person is still (laughs) either male or female, or maybe in a rare instance, maybe intersex, um, regardless of what their immaterial persona is, you know, telling them they are. So humans are biologically either male or female, small percentage intersex. Those are the categories we're working with. And those are by definition bodily categories. It's interesting that even in the Bible, the categories of male and female, we often see male and female paired together, both of humans and also of animals. Like this is not even unique to uh, humanity. It's unique to mammals, really, that we are male or female. So the whole idea of having, for instance, a male soul and a female body or vice versa, I I think that's um, misunderstanding the very category of what male um, and female is. So um, now I will say, and I'll, I'll, I'll stop at this, certainly people can um, feel that way. Like when somebody says, you know, I, I just feel like my soul is female, even though my body's male, oftentimes they're not really trying to make a philosophical claim. 
um, oftentimes are simply trying to um, describe the really unique and sometimes really difficult experience they have in life. So I think we, we do need to look almost past or through the supposed philosophical claim to the actual lived experience of the person we're, we're listening to. Preston, maybe this is a, a little bit different claim that's being made than, than what you just referred to, but you point out in the book that the neurosciences uh, have been really helpful to us in understanding some of the transgender phenomenon. Um, and the, uh, often the claim is made that it's possible to have a male brain in a female body or to have to have, have the brain put out certain uh certain signals that are characteristic of males while having a female body at the same time. What, what do we make of that claim? And t- tell us a little bit about what the neurosciences show us about that. Uh, yeah, that's another great question. Um, and let me just, first of all, say I'm not a, a scientist. I'm not a neuroscientist. So um, I, 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 you know, I would encourage people to do their own research, but, but I have spent a lot of time reading through much of the scientific literature on the so-called, uh, we call it the brain sex theory, you know, should we understand the human brain to be sexed like the body is, okay, we have male and female bodies, that's not disputed. Do we also have male and female brains? In popular scientific, some people call it pseudoscientific, but I'll, you know, I don't want to, um, Stack the deck here. In, in popular scientific literature, it, it can be po- it can be common for people to talk about the male brain and female brain, but if you look at the actual scientific, the neuroscientific research, it's it's a bit more complicated than that. And you know, there's still a lot of studies being done, so I don't want to make any definitive claim, but overall, it does seem fairly clear that our brains, the human brain does not come sexed as the body is. So for instance, for non-intersex humans, the body is either male or female. There's no, it's like clearly one or the other. That doesn't mean we're hundred percent different. There's a lot of overlap between males and females as well. Um, and the same thing goes, or, or no, sorry, something different is going on in the brain. It's not, it doesn't seem to be the case that brains come to us as you know, sexually dimorphic body parts. Like you have a male brain over here and then a female brain over there. It, it does seem to be the case that males and females have general differences in their brain um, uh, structures, the way our brains interact. Um, but these differences are not absolute. In fact, the differences in brains, it's very similar to how we can even compare differences in say like the height between males and females. Like if I ask you, you know, are, are men taller than women? You know, your, your response should say, should be something like, well, yes, but not absolutely. Like, yes, if you lined up the tallest hundred humans on earth, they would all be men. And the shortest, you know, hundred humans on earth, they would probably all be women, but some women are taller than some men. It's not an absolute claim to say that men are taller than uh, women. It's a general claim. So the same thing kind of goes with the brain. Like, yes, male brains do have general kind of interests. Uh, men do tend to be, for instance, more analytical, whereas women um, tend to be, um, uh, well, they, they can, they can, uh, <laughs> they can 
multitask for for lack of better terms, you know, or, you know, the classic understanding that, you know, women are more emotional than men are less emotional, whatever, like, but these are all generalities. So if you're a man who is not very analytical, who maybe, you know, cries like a baby during a movie, who maybe isn't good at sports and maybe isn't into, you know, science or technology or, you know, medicine or whatever, that doesn't mean he's not a man. It just means that he might um, fall outside the majority of the male experience. So all that to say, I, I think it's, um, I mean, I honestly, I would say I think it's just simply scientifically inaccurate and almost dangerous to say that a biological female could, for instance, have a male brain. I think it's very accurate to say a biological female, you know, could have male typical interests, could act more masculine, but that's totally fine. Like if you're a woman and you, you don't cry during movies and you hate the color pink, like that doesn't mean you have a male brain. It just means you're not a very feminine woman. And the Bible says, hooray, hurrah, be a godly woman. It doesn't mean you have to be a masculine or a feminine woman. Um, yeah. Preston, one of the things that you've addressed is some of your concern about gender stereotypes from the culture making their way into the church and how that harms people who don't fit into those stereotypes. Can you talk a little bit about what the Bible does say about gender and maybe some ways we could be more careful and thoughtful to people who don't fit some of those stereotypes? Yeah, that's a great, great question. And, um, and let me just acknowledge that there's different viewpoints on this within the evangelical church. Um, but I would say that while the Bible might recognize that there are general differences between men and women, okay, throughout the Bible, um, you know, there are more women staying at home and raising the kids. There are more men going off to war. Like the Bible does recognize certain biological differences between the broad categories of men and women. So I don't want to collapse, you know, male and female together, say there's no differences. Certainly there are biological and sociological differences. However, the Bible doesn't morally mandate that all males must act masculine or that all females must act feminine. While many females probably do naturally act feminine, while many males do naturally act, mas- act masculine, and that's, that's a great thing. Um, the Bible never morally mandates that. And oftentimes, our assumptions about what it means to be a manly man or a, you know, a, a feminine woman, a lot of times, if we really, you know, take that list of traits, you know, what is it to be masculine? What is it to be feminine? And if we match it up to the Bible, oftentimes the Bible just simply doesn't resonate with that. Like it doesn't command that. Oftentimes our assumptions about what it means to be masculine or feminine come from culture and not the Bible. I mean, think about how many men in the Bible weep and cry and kiss each other. Like you ever read the Psalms or even the life of Christ and how many times men are crying, even though in our culture, in, at least in the Western culture, if a man cries, that's viewed as being a feminine trait. Or how about some women in the Bible who are like prophets and judges and you know, you have Yael and Judges 4 driving a tent peg through a dude's skull, you know, like it's a very masculine thing to do. And yet the Bible, it, it the Bible beautifully gives us a lot of freedom in um, living out our male or female identity. And again, yes, most men will probably be masculine. Most women will be feminine. 
But the Bible doesn't morally mandate those categories. So, Preston, let's in the time we have left here, let's let's t- tackle. I think some practical questions for the the Christian who is experiencing gender dysphoria. Um, it, should should that person so say say the person is considering uh, gender reassignment surgery or more more radical means of transitioning? Um, what is that? Is that something that should even be on the table for somebody who's a faithful follower of Christ, or does the Bible have pro, you know prohibitions against that? Yeah, this is. Um, let me first of all say that if man, I've you know I've sat down and listened to people who experience gender dysphoria. Sometimes it's really severe and. It's taken me a while to really get inside the skin of somebody who experiences severe gender dysphoria. And it's just, it's heart-wrenching. I mean, the simple daily tasks that we take for granted, like waking up and brushing your teeth and looking into a mirror and going to the bathroom and just getting dressed and going outside, things that we don't even think about can be exacerbating for somebody with gender dysphoria. Sometimes they can't even make it outside the door day in, day out. So I I think um, before we address the ethical questions of transitioning, man, I, my heart really truly goes out to people who are wrestling with this, especially on a severe level. Um, Having said that, I mean, I, if we just look at it biblically, ethically, like, I think it's a really tough case to argue that God would desire somebody to you know, try to take surgical steps to make themselves look like the opposite sex, you know? I mean, you can't really scientifically, at least yet, you know, change your biological sex. You know, that's, that's not a scientific possibility. You can very much make yourself look like the opposite sex, but I, I just, I don't see a good convincing biblical argument to say that in some cases, this is really the the best way that a disciple of Christ should live out their human identity. You know, we talked earlier about, you know, intersex being a condition of the body and transgender experiences being more of a condition of the mind. Well, if it is a condition of the mind, if gender dysphoria is truly something that is attacking the mind, then why would we take surgical steps toward the body to address something that's really occurring in the mind? Like in nowhere else in medical history, (laughs) um, in the ethical handbooks of medicine, would we take surgical bodily steps to address something that's going on in the mind. Now, again, having said that, it's the tough thing is it's not like there's some pill or some, you know, quick fix you could do to relieve the dysphoria. Like psychologists are oftentimes at a loss about how to um, help somebody relieve their dysphoria. And and so I don't want to make light of that experience. But again, from an ethical standpoint, I would much rather have the body of Christ you know, uh, surrender their time, energy, their e- emotions to invest in walking with this person to help lessen the dysphoria rather than uh, pursuing medical transitioning. And what, what we're also finding out is just on a practical level, aside from the ethics, just on a practical level, in many cases, it doesn't seem that surgical or hor- hormonal transitioning actually solves 
the incongruence. Like it might lessen the dysphoria, but the suicide rates are still very high. The mental health uh, concerns sometimes are exacerbated through transitioning. So even transitioning, even if ethically we can say it's permissible, practically it doesn't seem like it's a clear kind of you know fix to the person's uh, you know uh, hardship that they're experiencing in life. Preston, I've I've read your book actually a couple times. You gave me the privilege of uh, of of endorsing it, and I can just tell as an author this took a massive amount of work, individual conversations with people, and research. And I frame it that way for a couple of reasons. I want our listeners to know that this is a fantastic book, and I hope they pick up a copy of Embodied. It's very readable. It's research based. You tackle some of the tough practical questions like you know, should you use pronouns or not. And you have an opinion on that, but you represent the other side very fairly. It's it's the book I will be recommending to people when people ask me about this, especially for a theological and pastoral approach. But as much as I've studied this, you've studied it significantly more than I have. And And my question is, having studied this so much, what do you want the church to know about loving people who are trans? Mm. I uh, appreciate that, Sean, and thanks for the great compliments on the book. That means a lot coming from uh, you and Scott. Um, oh, man. Um, the first thing that comes to mind is for Christians to stop paying close attention to the political conversation about transgender people. You know, there's a lot going on there with bathrooms and activists and different bills laws being passed and stuff and all, all that's important and very real but oftentimes the political conversation can shape our hearts and minds more than the christian or biblical conversation so i would say to any christian wanting to think through this um there's two main things you could do one do a lot of study on it <laughs> do a lot of research do your own work and number two um sit down, get to know, and listen to people who identify as trans, you know? Um, if you've, my friend Mark Yarhouse, who's a Christian psychologist who deals in this area, you know, he says, if you've met one transgender person, you've met one transgender person. Like, don't think that just because somebody identifies as trans, they're just like the next person who identifies as trans. We need to get to know the beautiful individual people who are, you know, walking life through this experience, and only then can we truly embody the love and truth of Jesus in their life. That's great. And that that's beautiful. And that's what I appreciate you bring to these conversations is you're not afraid to talk about the controversy and the difficulty, but it's always with a heart of how do we actually love people in the way Christ would have us love them. So to our, our listeners, I hope you'll pick up a copy of Embodied. Uh, when people ask me for resources on issues of sexuality, the LGBTQ conversation, I recommend your work, Preston, and, and where you're at, the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. So I hope our listeners uh, will check that out. Thanks for your friendship to Biola and Talbot. Uh, be encouraged. I can only imagine some of the fire you get for writing this book as graciously as you do. <laughs> I can only begin to imagine. So be encouraged. Know that we love you. And just thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me on, you guys. Really appreciate it. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Preston Sprinkle, and to find more episodes, 
go to biola.edu forward slash think biblically. That's biola.edu forward slash think biblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please consider giving us a rating on your podcast app and sharing it with a friend. Thanks for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything. Thank you.